to be asked to present the Dell Lectures this year. The distinguished group who have preceded me have made me aware of how really distinguished this honor is, but more importantly, having read Reverend Dill's sermons, which I intend to talk some about this afternoon, I understand the great prophetic tradition of this church. You'll have to excuse me if uh, <clears throat> my sermon today is a bit different than what you're accustomed to. I come from a multi-generational group of storytellers in Appalachia. And as you know, if you have ever studied the traditions of Appalachia, <clears throat> we put great value in the parable and the story. And I've even brought a couple of friends of mine along to help me with the sermon, and which I invite the children to come and sample. If you've never seen or danced with a limberjack, you might find it a wonderful experience. When I did this sermon as part of the children's sermon at Auburn First Baptist in July, <clears throat> one of my deacon friends said it's the first time he'd ever seen a pig dance in a Baptist church. Um, but I told him that's just part of the Appalachian clog dancing tradition. He said, well, then that's all right. Um, I know something about the Methodist tradition because I have two sons who married two Methodist sisters. I guess it's a Southern thing, but at any rate, um, my two sons were raised Baptist, and my two daughter-in-laws were raised Methodist, and we now have four Methodist children in our family. <laughs> so I know the evangelical tradition of the Methodist church, but it helps if you raise beautiful Methodist daughters in addition to everything else. Many of the toys in my <clears throat> collection were made by my grandmother, Annie Phoebe <coughs> Owens Flint, and by my father. I never figured out whether my grandmother was such a skilled carver and craftswoman because she hated housework, which she did. She much preferred carving. Or whether it was because Annie was the middle of 18 children. Or because she had eight children of her own and therefore spent her whole life with little children tugging at her skirts. Or whether it was simply because, as a sharecropper's wife, she had no money for store-bought toys anyway. She especially favored my father, who, as a teenager, was chopping wood one day when the axe blade ricocheted off the chopping block and cut a deep gash in his leg. Normally, her home remedies of turpentine and herbs cured such cuts, but not this time. And Dad developed a bone disease known as osteomyelitis, which very nearly cost him both of his legs to amputation. During the two years Dad was out of school, Annie roamed the woods east of the Coosa River with him looking for just the right white oak tree, which she cut down and carved into parts from which she made wagons for her eight children 
and white oak baskets and wheels for various toys and limberjacks. Of the four limberjacks in my collection, two are plain, conventional, commercial limberjacks, which you would find in almost any folk toy store in the South. However, two of them are truly exceptional. One is homemade, and for those of you who are children under 10 or children over 70, you might find these really interesting <laughs> at the end of the sermon. Uh, this one, as you can see, is homemade painted as a clown. And I know from reading the sermons of your former pastors, this is the first time a clown has ever been in your pulpit. <laughs> However, this one, who is really a fine bug dancer, is sort of put to shame by this one. And I kid you not, uh, when I preached about this same subject about three years ago, there was a couple from the Ozarks in Arkansas in the congregation, and they thought I had prepared this sermon by the inspiration of God just because they were going to be there. <laughs> because this pig, who is one of the best dancers I've ever seen and can actually flip his legs over his head and has the finest set of pig's ears you've ever had and a snout to kill for, this pig was made by craftsmen in Mountain View, Arkansas, up in the high Ozarks, a town which specializes in folk crafts and toys for people who, if they happen to have been raised in the Ozarks, do not recognize the toy or the folk art. Because this particular craftsman who made this particular pig was from Vermont, and he was seeking peace and quiet from the world of the urban northeast in the mountains of the Ozarks, and he made these pigs and sold them as folkish toys, authentic Arkansas souvenirs, which they are not. So far as I know, there has never been a carved pig despite the tradition of the Razorbacks at the University of Arkansas. Porky Pig is a wonderful dancer. He is cute. When he, double-jointed as he is, begins to flip his legs over his body to the tunes, for instance, of our organist who is comfortable playing Handel, but not so much what I requested him to play when I was doing this children's sermon, which is a very fast version of When the Saints Go Marching In. My pig can boogie. I mean, seriously, Boogie, as you will see if you come down afterwards. But, although if my limberjacks had a heart, and if they had feelings, they would want to be like Porky Pig, because he has been voted by every children's group I have ever performed for as the greatest limberjack they have ever seen. But he is not indigenous to the Ozarks. He is inauthentic. He is not real. He's a fake. So should that, in fact, disqualify him 
from being the greatest lumberjack ever. Isn't it funny how the human species craves to know who is the greatest and aspires to that role for themselves? Don't we do silly things in the pursuit of the greatest? The best evidence I have ever read for this theological silliness is in the three synoptic gospels. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, puts it this way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. Mark 9 has a slightly different story, but the same message. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What are you arguing about among yourselves? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and he had him stand among them. Taking him, the child, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. Luke 9 combines the two stories, but with its own unique vision. An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For who, he who is least among you, he is the greatest. So, in Matthew, the disciples come to Jesus and simply raise the question, which was very much on their minds, which one of us, 12, is the greatest in the kingdom? In Mark, Jesus asked the disciples what they were arguing about as they walked on the way to Capernaum. But they were too embarrassed to answer. And so they changed the subject. Why the embarrassment? Could the reason have been the contrast between Jesus' ministry of servanthood and their heart's desire to be the greatest? In Luke, an argument begins about which of them is the greatest. Can you fill in the evidence 
the 12 of them might have offered. Jesus obviously liked me best because he took me to the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, but he asked me to distribute the bread and the fish to the multitudes. Oh, that's okay, but he asked me to go fishing with him. Yeah, but we didn't have a place to stay that night. He stayed in my home. Or, okay, but he entrusted me with the treasury. Or, I'm the one who answered his theological riddles correctly most often. Can you imagine being a teacher with such stupid students? Why were they silent? Because they knew what was in their hearts, unspoken when he said, what were you arguing about? And Jesus, always a master of the teachable moment, definitely knew he had a teachable moment. So, seeing the child, he beckoned it to stand beside him, and in essence, he told them that the children did not have a clue what constituted greatness and didn't much argue about it because they had no power and no authority, which we assume constitutes the essence of greatness. And until the disciples learned to serve others instead of disputing such silly and worldly questions as who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, they wouldn't even be average disciples, much less would they be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What could Jesus have meant when he invited them to become like a child again? I have a hunch that he was referring to the vulnerability of children, to a child's innocence, to a child's lack of power. A child alone in the world in the first century in Palestine was very much like a widow alone, or a leper alone, or a prisoner alone, or a stranger in the land like a refugee or an immigrant alone. They were the other, the ignored, the invisible, the vulnerable. I never heard a better commentary than my pastor at Bethsaida Hills Baptist Church who once roared from our pulpit up on the mountain overlooking all the problems of downtown Birmingham. Tell me how much you know of the suffering all around you, and I will tell you how much you love mankind. What he meant was that loving vulnerable people is not a theological abstraction for our disputation. It is a highly demanding personal encounter you have with individual people. But let's go back to the challenge Christ posed. Unless you become like a little child. What exactly does that mean to you in Mobile 
in 2017, or more broadly, to all of us in Alabama in 2017. I would suggest that before you take the momentous step back into time, which Jesus required of you, you might ponder whether you want to move to another state. In June 2017, the NLRA Casey Foundation issues its annual Kids Count data book about the status of children in Alabama. There's some good news in that book. Between 2015 and 2016, Alabama gained two entire places on the other states. The bad news is we rose from 46th in child caring to 44th in child caring. Among children below the age of 20, 300,000 of them, 27% of all the children in Alabama, live in poverty. Nearly half of those eligible for Alabama's exemplary early childhood education program ranked among the top four programs in the United States. Only half of those eligible for that magnificent program can participate in it because we don't fund it adequately. It is the single place where we make the greatest progress in raising a three-year-old to the status of a middle-class Alabama child before they enter the first grade. Among Alabama fourth graders, 71% of them are not proficient in reading, and 83% of eighth graders are not proficient in mathematics. Last year, there were 21,000 cases of child abuse or neglect in this state reported to officials which took the lives of 13 of our children. More than 60,000 children in Alabama are being raised by grandparents because the parents have disappeared from their lives. 480,000 Alabama children are enrolled in Medicaid, 66% of the total and another 34,000 have no medical insurance, whatever. 82,000 young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 in Alabama were not enrolled in school last year. They had no job and they had no degree beyond high school, essentially the formula for a dead-end life in America. 65 children last year below the age of 19 were killed by firearms an increase of more than 20% from the year before. When we think about the status of a child in Alabama, we have to rethink what Jesus said when he told his disciples, welcome the little children. It's as if in Alabama we haven't got much beyond saying, hello there, Jennifer, or welcome into the world, George. And I don't think that's what Christ had in mind. I actually think what Christ had in mind was a weightier, more nurturing, and more engaged relationship between those of us who are old and those of us who are young. So if the definition of greatness is to serve and care for others and to be humble, to be least, Let's try to work our way into the mind of Christ to figure out if that is not what he meant, what did he mean? To the question of greatness, 
Jesus actually redefined the meaning we normally give to the world completely. Greatness is not what you say. Greatness is not even what you do. Greatness is what you are. The great German writer, sometimes called Germany Shakespeare, Wolfgang von Goethe, remembered a friend of his who told the greatest of all German writers, the writer of Faust, what you live, Wolfgang, is even better than what you write. Mahatma Gandhi had a slightly different take on greatness, but it's nonetheless profound. Our greatness lies not so much in being able to remake the world around us as being able to remake ourselves. Okay, first the Appalachian story of the Limberjacks, then the theology in between, and now I will confirm your most negative stereotypes of retired Auburn professors. I knew at this point I was going to need some sort of spellbinding story, something easily understood, something universally applicable. And so I spent a week or so dismissing and trying new ends to the sermon until I came up with this one. What is universally applicable and clear and easily understood at this time of year in Mobile? College football. The one unifying story, metaphor, for the end of a sermon. Now you have to understand that both previous employment and personal boss ruled out all University of Alabama football players, whatever, at this point. So that pretty much left me with Auburn. And besides, when I was a teenager growing up in Anniston, Alabama, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, my hero, was an Auburn football player. Now, the list of possibilities is endless, at least if you're from Auburn. But then again, I was 17 years old in 1957, and so that sort of reduces my options. There was no Bo Jackson, no Cam Newton, not even a Pat Sullivan, all possible candidates. So if you're into mind games, you can relieve the pressure of listening to the rest of the sermon by just sort of letting your mind free flow through the landscape of Auburn football until you come across your favorite single player, and that'll do fine for me, whether or not we agree one way or the other. At least you're from Auburn and picked one of our people. Or if you just are in the congregation and you hate football in general, or if you hate Auburn football in particular, you... You can just take a nap while your fellow parishioners go through their mental Rolodex to come up with their right name. So you have a choice of working on this from the Auburn side or just sleeping through the rest. Now, before I share my answer with you, I I want to emphasize the fact that when I ask you the question, who is the greatest football player, I began to play mind games with your values. What I mean by mind games with your values is 
Do I mean the greatest talented player or the player with the greatest impact? Because they might be different. If the most talented player is the one I'm looking for, suppose the most talented player was a terrible person and an awful role model for other students at Auburn and for the society as a whole. And did the greatest player have to play on the greatest team? And what of all the other players not so great who may have made it possible for the greatest player to be the greatest player? After all, football is a team sport. And if you don't have lots of players playing well and hard, then you don't have one great player emerging from the team sport. Or to put it another way, I just ask you an incredibly complicated question, whether you understood it when I asked it or not. Now, are you ready? This is my answer, just mine. I know that many of you would not agree with me, but every Sunday morning, I teach 105 members of the Pilgrim Sunday School class at First Baptist Church, all Baptist. And I can guarantee you I am prepared for Methodists to disagree with me. <laughs> I have had a Ph.D. doctoral program in Baptists who disagree with me. Lloyd Nix, I know I'm not supposed to do this. How many of you have heard of Lloyd Nix? Hey, boy, there are a lot of Auburn people in the congregation today. Lloyd Nix was a player who most of you obviously never even heard of. I would say four-fifths of the congregation did not raise their hands. Yet, as a 17-year-old senior at Anniston High School in the fall of 1957, Lloyd Nix became my hero. The story goes like this. Auburn was coming off a 7-3 season in 1956, and there were only four returning starting players. Admittedly, some of the four were really good. Tommy Lorino, Bobby Hoppy, a great blocking fullback and place kicker by the name of Billy A. Sackins, and an All-American end by the name of Jim Red Phillips. A dear friend of mine later in life, George Atkins, who was a coach on that 57 team, told a sports writer in August of 1957, nobody knows how hard these boys have worked and not too many know how badly they want to win. That was certainly true, but Auburn fans like me knew that September that two of the best players on that team had just been kicked off that team. As a matter of fact, the most talented player on that team was the returning quarterback. I suppose you could call him the greatest quarterback at Auburn in 1956-57. He would have returned for his senior citizens had he not cut classes, violated team rules, gone on a drunken rampage, and broken into a women's dorm. That might not get you kicked out of any major college football team these days, but it got that quarterback kicked out of Auburn. Furthermore, his backup 
on the team who had played a great deal in 56 and would have taken his place in 57, had discipline problems, and he was kicked off the team too. That left Lloyd Nix as the starting quarterback at the beginning of that season in September 1957, sort of an anniversary date. Nix, like me, was left-handed, which I suppose is what initially attracted me to him after the rigors of growing up as a left-hander in my generation of schools where you had a link inkwell over on the arm that reached across and you had to put the pen in like this and then I always got uh, unsatisfactory grades in penmanship for dragging my hand across the ink because the ink was on the other side and my pen was going like that. And I was furious at everybody right-handed and I loved Lloyd Nix because he shared something with me. Also, he had the same kind of nondescript pedigree I had in that he came from Kansas. Not the state of Kansas, but the postage stamp size community of Kansas, which is in northwestern Alabama in the coal country. The town was so small that it had no high school, and so he had to go to Carbon Hill up in the coal country in order to play his high school football. Prior to 1957, Lloyd Nix had played a total of 30 plays for the Auburn Tigers, and he had thrown one pass. He was third string for a reason. He was not very talented. When the bad news broke about the expulsions and Nick's emergence as the unlikely starting quarterback in September 1957, Coach Suge Jordan told a disbelieving sports writer, and I don't even think Suge believed it, I'm not worried about Lloyd's ability to get the job done, his game experience, and he has it okay. And he has the mental qualities and natural poise to be a good quarterback. He's not flashy, but he gets the job done, and that's what counts. Now, for those of you sitting in the congregation who are not familiar with head football coach speak, let me tell you the interpretation of that paragraph. It's sort of like telling a girl she has a great personality. Maybe you think that's a compliment, but maybe she was looking for something a little bit more than that. But as it turned out, Suge Jordan's comment was not hyperbolic. And led by Lloyd Nix, that team went 10-0, scored 270 points to the opposition's 28 points, and beat out Ohio State and Michigan State for the mythical national championship as the greatest football team in America. And by the way, although most people miss this about Knicks, in his senior season the next year, Auburn was 9-0-1. Yes, that's right. He never lost a game as a quarterback in the Southeastern Conference. Then he went on to dental school at UAB, graduated dental school the year I graduated college, opened a dental practice in Decatur. In summary, Nix was not particularly talented. He was surely not flashy. He did not make an all-star team, and he was not an All-American. He was not the Southeastern Conference's most valuable player, and he was by far not its best quarterback. He was just an ordinary guy 
who knew he was surrounded by more talented players than he was, and then he played within his own limitations. He let other people become the stars of that 1957 team because they were greater than he was. His job was as an enabler, make other people better, don't make mistakes yourself, maximize the gifts you've been given, and be the team's servant, not its greatest. After football, Nick's moved on, disappeared into the ordinary existence common to most of us, so much so that very few of you in this congregation even knew who he was or remembered him. But that was not the point of his life. He was a really good dentist. And he performed that service with great skill and compassion. He made a useful, productive life without being the greatest. His life reminds me of a saying I once read, most people spend their lives in search of fame and fortune, while here and there some noble souls forget their way into mortality. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Father, forgive us for wasting our time in the search for greatness, when merely living as humble servants is all the greatness you ever required of us. Amen. Amen.